We are Crossroads Grace Church. Our purpose is to lead people to discover Jesus and follow Him fully. This week's message is taught by our teaching pastor, Brian Hunt. From wherever you're listening, we hope that you are challenged and encouraged by this week's message. Hey, well, welcome everybody. Hey, I'm so glad that you're with us here today at Crossroads. My name is Pastor Brian. I'm the lead pastor here. I just want to welcome you wherever you might be joining us from all over the world. We are grateful that you are a part of our online community, especially those that are hosting some watch parties right now in your homes. Man, so excited for that. And the reason that I'm so excited is because, guys, check it out. We are preparing to re-enter into our Manteca campus the weekend of July 9th through the 12th. Th that's right. After three months of COVID hiatus, we are going to be re-entering our Manteca campus the weekend of July 9th and 12th. That is just three weeks away. We will be getting you plenty more details. Don't worry about that. But just mark that date on your calendar and be praying for us as we work through all of those details to be ready for you. But in preparation, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to encourage you to host watch parties in your home with your family, your neighbors, your friends, to, to reintegrate you into community with each other. In fact, you could get some details on that at crossroadsgrace.org party, and we'll explain exactly what you need to do right there. In fact, your chat host will put that in the link right now so you can know exactly what to do. And so what I want you to do, though, is I want you to tell us a little bit about your watch party for, for something very special that we have planned the week of June 25th and 28th. So I want you to tell us, hey, where you're watching from, who you're watching with, maybe give your watch party a name. I don't know. You know, maybe it's the fighting bunnies. Like, I don't know. But, but tell our campus host, Robbie Abney, a little bit about yourself and your watch party and stay tuned for something really fun for four lucky watch parties. That's right. Four lucky watch parties. But here's what I want you to know. Our online campus has quickly become the driving force of what we're doing around here at Crossroads. And so I want to be very clear that that's never going to change. We are committed to our online family. And in fact, we are already taking steps to make your online experience better and better each week as we move forward. So we love our Crossroads watch parties and those joining us from all over. We are honored that you would call Crossroads uh, your home. And we, we even have more exciting things happening that will make your experience that much better. But beyond all that, this weekend, we are celebrating what? Father's Day, baby. That's right. And as a father, I understand the challenges that we all face as fathers. I know what it is like to be puked on in the middle of the night, but not want to move because the baby finally went to sleep. I, I know what it's like for your kids to say that they are bored as you're driving home from after a trip to Disneyland. I, I know what it's like to try and put your kids to bed and they act more like those inflatable clown dolls that keep popping up when you try to push them down. I know what it's like to stay up late wrapping presents for your kids only to realize that all of your hours of work will be reduced to a pile of paper in 0.75 nanoseconds after they unwrap it. I understand that. But I also know what it's like to feel like you're not doing enough. That you're feeling guilty about those long nights at work. You're feeling frustrated with yourself when you say no to playing catch because you're just tired. Feeling impatient when the kids want to talk at bedtime and all you want to do is relax for a few minutes. Feeling beat down, not thinking that you're doing enough. 
I, I know what it's like, my fellow fathers out there. And to all of us dads out there that, that think that we're killing it, or killing it or we're being killed by it, I tell you the very same thing. Keep your head up. Keep at it. It's not as bad as you think, and it's also not as good as you think. But, but the important thing to do is stay engaged and love your family well. This time that we have with our kids is so short. And so I say, make every second count. If COVID has taught me anything, it's that to value the most important things first. And I learned that as a, as a, as a stay-at-home dad that was trying to work and homeschool my kids for the past few months. I learned to love them better and to listen to them better and, and just be present with them better. Now, I still screw up more than I care to admit to anybody else, but my antennas have been perked up for maybe big time for the first time in my life. And now I understand what life is really about. And I pray that all of us as dads can do that. And, and one day, I hope my daughter says that she chose the man that she's going to marry because he was just like her dad. And, and my hope is that one day my son is living his life the way that he is because of his dad. Not that I'm great, but I pray that I'm faithful. And I'm faithfully loving God, loving their mom, and loving them. See, see those three things don't cost money, but they will cost you your time, your attention, and your effort. But I pray that we all can do that. But especially as dads, our kids might see this in our lives. I pray that they could see this in our lives, that we, that we lived out our lives in a way that made them proud to call us daddy and also paved a way for them to love Jesus. So if you would, just for a couple seconds, let me pray for our dads right now. Heavenly Father, Lord God, I ask right now that you would be with all of us as fathers. God, I know that there are people out there that would desire more than anything to be a father, and I pray for, you, for them and their pain. I pray for those that have lost their, their children. I pray for us in the middle of it that we don't know what to do. God, I pray for us all that you would give us strength wherever we might be at, meet us where we're at, but help us to be the type of men that would pave the way for our kids to know Jesus and that we would live a life that honors you, our wife, and our kids. So God, thank you for the honor it is to be a father. Help us in those days that we don't know what to do and encourage us that we could keep going because you're with us. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, listen, today we continue in our series called Greater. Now, Greater is a series that we are looking at the life of John the Baptist. And, and John is one of the most important figures in the entire Bible, hands down. He, he's talked about in the Old Testament, which is the part of the Bible before Jesus. And, and we said that he was also the, the hinge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He was right in the middle. He was described hundreds and hundreds of years before he was born as the one that would pave the way for Jesus to come onto the scene of history. And so in week one, we learned that John was known before he was born. He was given a purpose to his life that was unique to him. And we realized that we all have a unique purpose from God. Then in last week, Pastor Ed just crushed his message on worship. And we realized that worship was not so much about the words that we sing, but the life that we live. But, but how cool is it that today we continue to talk about John the Baptist, who is a dude of dudes. Now, now, who do you think of when you think of dude of dudes? Do you think of your dad? Do you think of people maybe like this? It's like, do you think of The Rock? You know what I'm saying? Like The Rock. Or maybe you think of this guy, right? From the Avengers, you got Thor. Thor's pretty a dude of dudes. I, I think we all have an image of what a man's man looks like. But I wonder if you've ever considered John the Baptist in the Bible. 
And if you're not familiar with the Bible, and man, that's totally cool. I'm so glad that you're with us today. Uh, you should just know that John, he wasn't a suit wearing, nine to five working, Prius commuter car driving kind of dude. Not that there's anything wrong with that, okay, but, but that just wasn't JTB. John was rough and rugged and would probably be sought after by Carhartt and Yeti to be their spokesman if it was today. The Bible tells us in the book of Matthew, he actually gives us a great description of his wardrobe and his rundown. So Matthew tells us this. He says, John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. That seems to be a pretty rough and rugged guy if you ask me. But the power of John was not in his shabby chic attire, but in his very straightforward, to-the-point message. John was most known for this phrase right here, where he would say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, most everyone has some sort of catchphrase. You might not know it, but you do. My catchphrase is tag your it. I tell people all the time that we are tag your it Christians, that, that when you log on, that I'm going to tell you about Jesus and you will tell your kids about Jesus. But when you log off, that you are then tagged by me to go do something with what you've just heard. I tell you that every week. Uh, but, but everyone has a catchphrase. So, so just right now, let's, let's do a little game. Let's see if you can remember some of these TV and movie stars' catchphrases. And I want you to type them in the comments before it pops up. See how many you can get. All right, let, let, let's start with this one. Uh, how about this guy? This is, right, this is Joey Tribbiani from, from Friends. You remember his catchphrase? Of course, it is. It is, are you doing? Are you doing? Okay. How about this one? Uh, how about this one? M Michelle Tanner. From, from Full House, set in San Francisco, those painted ladies' houses, everybody's went to those. You know, what was, what was Michelle's line? Of course it was, it was what? You got it, dude. Right, that one, perfect. H how about this one? Continuing with the TGIF uh, series that we remember so well, this is Steve Urkel. And, and of course, remember that his, his line was what? It was, uh, did I do that? <laughs> right, remember that? Or, or what about this last one? Our former governor of California, Arnold Schwarzenegger, what did he say as the Terminator? His line was always, I'll be back. <laughs> right? Right? So, so John had a catchphrase, had a phrase, and his phrase was this. It was, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. But, but to understand the fullness of what he meant, we have to actually go back to when he first said it. So if you have your Bibles today, I'm going to encourage you to open to Luke chapter 3. You might have your Crossroads Grace app open. I'd love for you to go there. Or you can simply follow the link that your chat host will put in the chat below so you can go right to the Bible. And, and where we'll pick up is when John has already been born and now he's grown to become a man. But before we allow John to enter the scene or into this picture, we need to understand the culture that he's coming from. So read with me, if you will, Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Listen to what it says. Luke tells us, it says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Itria and Trachonitis, and Licinius Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. So let's try to understand exactly who the players are here that we just read about. First off is Caesar. He's El Jefe. He's the Roman boss of everyone. Pontius Pilate, he's a Roman governor responsible for keeping the peace and also taxing everyone. Herod, he was supposed to keep an eye on the region and also give the illusion that the Jewish people actually had a self-governing system. 
And then there was Herod, Herod's brother Philip. He was a tetrarch, or he was a governor of a neighboring region. There was Licinius, he was also another governor. And then finally we read about Caiaphas. He was the high priest at the time. He would eventually, though, become the one that was responsible for the death of Jesus. And you might be asking, who cares? What does this matter with anything? And it matters because it's important to understand the political and the religious environment that John was entering into. The world was a hot mess at the time of Roman politics, Jewish politics, and religious politics. So without question, this is a very, very sticky situation. However, this is when God's people are needed the most. It's, it's, you see, when things are smooth and easy, it's not genuinely when God's people need to rise up. But when things are the messiest and in the most need of Jesus' love, that's when we see God call people to rise up and be his voice. Which is exactly what we read as we continue to see in verses 2 through 3. It says in this. It says, The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So when the world was in the most need of a voice from God, God sends John's voice into the world. John was an Old Testament prophet now thrust into the New Testament time as the hinge. Luke even uses Old Testament language to reiterate John's calling. Look what he says in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 4 through 6. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall be straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John was the one that will pave the way for the way, who is Jesus, to come. And John's ministry was going to be framed by one three-syllable word. And that word is repentance. Repentance. And and when we hear the word repentance, usually it sends like a, a shiver up our spine. Because repentance carries all kinds of negative connotations with it normally. We think of slick preachers that sweat a lot and ask for money a lot and tell us that we're going to hell if we don't repent. Right? The, the, the truth is that repentance does have a heavier feel. It's because repentance is the moment when the weight of our decisions and our life press hard enough on us that we decide we need to change. But repentance actually is one of the most freeing things that we can experience in our entire life. It's the moment that we realize that we've made mistakes, we need forgiveness, and we desire to live in a different way. This was John's calling. He was calling people to repent of their sins and prepare their hearts for the Messiah that was coming to save them. And he didn't do it in hiding. John's ministry was very public and it was very popular. The Gospel of Mark actually tells us in Mark chapter 1 verse 5. It says the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, when you see the whole Judean and in all of Jerusalem, you should say that's a lot of people. The crazy wild hair, beard covered in honey and locust guts, John drew a crowd. And and where we pick back up in Luke chapter 3, he's baptizing people in the river while people are lining up on the banks to get baptized or just to watch. But but check out what John says. Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 7, he says this. 
He says, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? <laughs> it's not exactly the best customer service greeting if you think about it. I doubt that John would be able to land a job at Chick-fil-A because I can't hear him saying, it's my pleasure. But, but John was serious. Because everywhere he turned, everywhere he looked along the banks were the people I just mentioned a minute ago. Roman politicians, Jewish politicians, and Jewish religious people. All of them lined up. And John says, hey, hey y'all got issues. And you might think you know it's about to come, but you have no idea. I'm telling you that you will not be fully clean, fully clear until you have some actions with your desires. That's why John goes on to say in verses 8 and 9, he says, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John says that the water I'm in right now will not save you or it will not cleanse you. Because what you need you need, you need to have a changed life. You need action. And fathers and men today, we can appreciate this, can't we? We, we appreciate action. We, we don't care about Major League Baseball squabbling about money. We want to watch baseball. We don't care about hearing about all the side dishes that come with our meal. We want to eat meat. That's all we care about. We, we don't want to hear about why our kids can't clean their room. We just want their rooms clean. Can I get an amen from any parent out there right now? John says true repentance has action with it. And he actually uses this word. He, he uses the word fruit. He says you should produce fruit. You should bear fruit. And, and man, when he said that, the Jewish people would have perked all up. Because JTB just went OT on them right there. That's right. All this, all this fruit language actually is from the prophets in the Old Testament. Talking about vineyards and how only vineyards that produce things are worthy to God. And so, so all of a sudden what he's done is he's captivated his audience. And so when John said this, when he said this, it's no wonder why the response of the people was this. John in Luke chapter 3 verse 10. They say, what should we do then? The crowd asked. This is the question. What should we do? It might even be the question you're asking. You might have some stuff in your life right now that you're realizing is out of sync with what God wants. You might have some areas in your past that you've never dealt with. Maybe you're in the middle of something right now and you feel this sense of regret and disconnect happening with what you know is right. And deep down you want to know, what should I do then? And what John says next is really important for us to consider when it comes to the freedom of repentance that we find in our life. And I'll tell you this, John is actually going to speak to five groups of people in the next few verses. And he's going to give us five fruits that come as a sign of repentance. I'll call them these. I'll call them the five fruits of a repentant life. Five fruits of repentant life. And we're going to use Luke 3, 8, where, it's, where he told us that we are to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. This is where it comes from. So five fruits. And the first fruit we need to see is actually one we've already talked about earlier, but you might have missed it. Look back with me at verse 9. Verse 9 says this. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. So the first fruit that we actually see from this verse is the fruit of faithfulness. 
faithfulness. John makes a point to point out to his Jewish rooted audience that just because you know Abraham, who's a super famous patriarch of the Bible, doesn't mean that you're good with God. Your faith is not transferred like land after you die. In other words, you're not saved by your family ties, that you went to a Christian school, that your grandmother was a Christian, none of that. Guys, it's saying that you are saved by the grace of Jesus alone. That's what he's telling us. And this might be the most dangerous group of people out there that I would say. Because they are, to, to borrow from author Daryl Block's language, they are called tweeners. Tweeners. And, and let, me, let, me listen, let me read this to what, what Daryl says. He says, tweeners are people who see themselves as in relationship with God, but who in fact are not really in communion with him because they have not trusted him. They look in, but really are out. Thus, they are located between their claim and the reality in a way someone who openly reflects God is not. So let me just be really straightforward with you. If you are relying on the faith and the repentance of someone else to make you right with God, you are a tweener. You are not a believer. You're a tweener. True repentance is seen in a personal faithfulness. That's the first fruit that you will see of repentance. Now, the second, first, the second fruit is actually seen in verse 11. Verse 11 actually says this. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. So the second fruit that we see is the fruit of kindness. Kindness. Now, the, kindness, the kindness that we show here reflects how deeply the peace of God has penetrated our life. Because it's always fascinated me that when we see a child, our first instinct is to be gentle and kind. I mean, none of us go in for like a firm handshake with a newborn. You know, you ever seen that? Like we don't, we don't slap a, a toddler on the back when we greet him. Like, how you doing, buddy? Like we don't do that. There isn't a need for sarcastic banter with a little one that's telling us about their favorite stuffed animal. No, no, what are we? We are kind. And one of my favorite memories with my kids is actually when we used to hide under crocheted blankets and we would let the light kind of peek through the holes. And each of us would take turns choosing which one of the stars that we liked the best. Right? It was kindness. It's kindness. And if a child had a need, you'd give the shirt off your back for them in a blink of an eye. But yet as we grow older, our kindness fades. We become hard and cynical and judgmental towards everyone around us. You could call it pride or defensiveness, but the kindness we will show others will only be given out when there is something in it for us. But what John says here is that when repentance has entered our life, we no longer look at our life as what can you do for me, but more of what can I do for you. The word repentance literally means turning away from our old ways and walking in new ways that, are, ways that are paid for us by God. So if the old is pride, the new is humility. If the old is greed, the new is generosity. If the old is meanness, the new is kindness. The fruit of a repentant life will be seen in the kindness we show others as a result of the change God has done in us. That's the second fruit. But the third fruit is seen in verses 12 through 13. It says, even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to do, he told them. So the third fruit that we see is the fruit of self-control. 
Self-control. Here John turns to address a group of people that every person on the bank of that Jordan would have dismissed and would have hated. Tax collectors were considered some of the lowest of low in all of society. These were Jews that were contracted by Rome to collect Roman tax, but they were given the free reign to inflate the tax amount to whatever they wanted to, to line their own pockets. Rome only cared about getting their money, so they could care less about what they did. Yet the power of Rome's authority went with these tax collectors, so the people had no choice but to pay them what they said. So when these tax collectors, they asked, hey, how can I be made right with God? John says, a repentant heart has self-control. You don't overcharge people, but you charge them the taxed amount and nothing else. And in a world of indulgence, at every turn, we too are asked to maintain that same heart of self-control. So for us, self-control might be saying no to the Mr. T's donut. That's hard, I know, but it is. Putting the game controller down so you can engage with your wife and your kids in real time. Choosing to say no to the advances of that cute guy at the office and honoring your husband. Deciding to not yell at the teenage worker at Target when the toilet paper is out as if they had anything to do with it not being in stock. Right? We need to choose a new life found in God. We need to choose a life of self-control because there is now a peace in us when we do that that doesn't need any more of what the world offers, but we are content. We are in control with what God gives us. That's the third one, self-control. The fourth fruit is seen in verse 14. It says, Then some soldiers asked him, And what should we do? He replied, Don't extort money and don't ex accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So the fourth fruit we see is the fruit of gentleness. Now, now this is amazing to me when I read this. So, so John has such a diverse group of people around him that not only does he have common people and tax collectors seeking him, but even soldiers that are around him are intrigued. Imagine with me a big sword-wielding, armor-wearing soldier asking a guy with wet camel hair robe, honey-stained beard, who's standing in the middle of the Jordan River, how can I be right with God? That's crazy. But they could tell. And John knew that even they needed repentance. And John says to the soldier, be gentle with people. Don't, don't use your position to intimidate them out of money. Don't falsely accuse people. Don't abuse the power you've been given to get what you want. This has echoes of self-control to be sure, but this gentleness is different. Because gentleness, listen, gentleness is choosing to use your power differently. You have it, but you choose to not use it just because. One of the most powerful things in the world that we have at our disposal is restraint. Restraint is a willful choice to not use all of what I could, but to do only what I should. That is a sign of true power. Because notice John is not saying, hey, stop being a soldier, become a pastor, that's how you get right with God. No, no. John knew that being a soldier wasn't the sin, but it was the misuse of the power given to the soldier that was. So John is saying, be gentle. That will be the sign of the greatest power in the world. So be gentle. That's the, that, that's the fourth fruit. But the final fruit we actually see in a few verses later. So if you would, look closely at verse 19 with me. Now, don't worry. We're going to get to the other verses in just a second. But look at verse 19 with me. Luke chapter 3, verse 19. It says, But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, 
Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Now you have to love John. Remember, John was paving the way for the way who was Jesus. And he was doing it. He was paving the way with a bulldozer named Repentance. And John was bold enough to not just play favorites or, or, di- or not dive into the politi- or to dive into the politically correct pool. No, he, cur- he calls out everyone to repentance. So now John turns his scorpion stinger loaded with repentance towards the one person you don't want to strike. Herod. See, I can imagine Herod even be like, maybe like shaking his head in agreement as John's talking to all those other people and saying, you know, this, the tax collectors and the, and, the, and, the, and the common people and the soldiers. He might have been thinking, yep, that, that makes sense. They should, they should totally do all those things. But then John points the finger right at Herod and he says, everybody needs to repent and that includes you, big boy. You see, Herod was a special kind of viper to borrow John's words. What Herod had done was he had left his wife to marry his brother's wife, Herodias, which was illegal by Jewish law and was just kind of gross, if you ask me. I mean, could you even imagine Thanksgiving dinner? I mean, my goodness gracious, right? But, but John says, you need to repent, Herod, of what you've done. I know it. We all know it. Know it. But notice something here that is really critical about repentance. It's our response to it. How do you, or what do you do when someone calls you out on your junk? What do you do when you're called out on a lie you told? What do you do when a Christian brother or sister tells you that leaving your spouse is not honoring God? What do you do when someone finds out about your addiction? What do you do when repentance is facing you? Unfortunately, many of us would do what Herod did. We we, we try to get rid of it. We we just read here, right? We just read here that that what he did. He said, Herod added all of this to them. And then what did he do? He locked John up in prison. we, We just read that. Because here's what he thought. He says, if he's if he's in jail, then I'm back in control, Herod thinks. If John's in jail, he doesn't have to hear about this repentance stuff anymore. This way he could just keep playing house with his brother's wife and his conscience could go to sleep. He won't have to be bothered by it. He added it all up, locked John in prison. And we do the very same thing. Instead of admitting the lie, we tell another one to cover it up. Instead of trusting God to heal our marriages, we make up excuses for why the person is terrible and we're justified in our actions. Instead of getting help for the addiction, we'll deny it. We'll feel like we're entitled. We'll play the victim. We will criticize. We'll blame others. And we will make all kinds of excuses. We run from repentance out of selfishness. And when we do that, we miss out on the final fruit of repentance. And that is the fruit of love. When we run from repentance, we are running from love. We are running from God's love of grace and mercy and forgiveness. We are running from the one, the one thing that will make our lives complete, make us whole. We are running from the greatest fruit of repentance, and that is love. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, you you might have started to recognize something, this list actually, because a guy by the name of Paul actually describes these very same things and what we've known in Galatians 5.22 as the fruit of the Spirit. 
But as I've read this and I've studied it, I could see that Paul had to have been influenced by what John had said here. Galatians 5.22 tells us, it says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. See, these are the fruit of the Spirit that God, these are the fruit of the Spirit of God in you and the results of a life of repentance. But here's the deal. All of this, all of that doesn't matter if you don't have Jesus. Without Jesus, this just becomes a really nice fruit salad that even good people will eat, but it will never affect their soul. Which is why we need to understand what John was doing when he was in that river. Read with me, go back, verses 15 through 18. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his, his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John extorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. John was baptizing people into repentance, but he was paving the way for Jesus who would baptize them with forgiveness. But what was this baptism thing all about? See, see, see baptize, baptism wasn't a new concept in the Jewish world. Uh, they were very accustomed to what they called ritual cleansing baptisms. And these baptisms pools, they were very, very common and they were called mikvahs. Uh, mikvahs were so widely dispersed and inter, in, integrated into Jewish life that they've even been found in every Jewish archaeological site in, in the land of Israel. And they were located in the homes of people of all social classes. So a common misconception is that mikvahs was only used to enter the temple. But in fact, ritual cleansing was common outside the temple too. This little baptism. So the act of baptism wasn't unnerving. But what was unprecedented was that John was saying that only one baptism was necessary. That you can be cleansed by one act of baptism. And it had nothing to do with John, the water, or even the location. It was about a spiritual water that only Jesus could bring. Repentance is good. But forgiveness for those things that we repent of is what we need the most. I love what author Daryl Block says. He says that to be prepared for God's salvation, one's heart must be open to his message. That is what repentance does. It opens our heart to what God wants to say to us. In fact, this is what I want you to take away today more than anything else. And it's this, that repentance is acceptance that I'm in need of forgiveness. Repentance is acceptance that I'm in need of forgiveness. And the act of baptism is the outward sign that we are accepting the forgiveness that Jesus offers us. But what I love about Jesus is that he never asks us to do something that he himself did not do himself or demonstrate. Which is why this scene in the water with John is not complete without what comes next. If you look at Mark chapter 1 verse 9, we read these words. It says, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Two key things. The first, Jesus 
got baptized. Sinless Jesus, not needing to repent of anything, perfect in all ways, got baptized. Why? As a demonstration to us of what we needed to do. And then secondly, Jesus got baptized in the Jordan. The beautiful part about that is for all those Jewish people right there, the Jordan River meant something. It was the Jordan that was, that was parted when Joshua walked across it and the 12 tribes of Israel and they, they went into the promised land. It was, a, it was a monumental moment. It was a hinge moment. And now John is baptizing Jesus in the moment in time where people think about the most of the Old Testament saying there's a new coming and it's going to happen through Jesus. The old life is now gone. The new life is here. But look at what happens as Jesus goes under those waters to get baptized himself. In Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 10, it says, Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So my friends today, this Father's Day weekend, I ask you this. What would it look like for you to have God say that about you? That when you realize that your life is lacking and is longing for something deeper because of the sin in your life, that when you desire to repent of the sin that is killing you and receive the forgiveness that only Jesus offers, and when you publicly demonstrate that decision through baptism, that God himself would say to you one day, that's my son, that's my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. My friends, I am going to invite you to do something. I'm going to invite you to respond to the repentance that John spoke of and the grace that Jesus just wants to give us. And I'm going to ask you to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But I'm also going to ask you to take a step forward and get baptized. That's right. On June 28th, we are going to have a baptism outside of our building and you are going to have a chance to get baptized yourself. I want you right now, right now, I want you to go to this website, crossroadsgrace.org baptism. I want you to tell us that you want to get baptized, that you want to publicly declare your faith in Jesus. I want you to do that right now. Now, if you're joining us from somewhere that's not near the Central Valley, I want you to tell your host right now, and what we're going to do is we're going to talk with you and figure out how we can make arrangements for you to get baptized wherever you might be at. We will do everything we possibly can to do that for you. But I'm going to challenge you on June 28th to get baptized. And I want you to do it. I want you to come. And I want you to get baptized. Again, we'll figure it out if you're not near the Central Valley. But I want you to take that step forward. Why? Because it matters. Because it's not about the water that you're in. It's about the spiritual water Jesus is pouring over you in his love, in his grace, in his mercy. And at communion, this is exactly what we celebrate. It is a moment to remember that Jesus died on the cross for our sins in our place. That he resurrected from death three days later. That he ascended to heaven to prepare a place for us. And that what he asks us to do is to accept him as our Lord and Savior. To repent, to say goodbye to our old life to embrace the new life found in Jesus, and then to get baptized as a public demonstration that we believe in him. It is what we are called to do. And the fruit of repentance will float to the surface as we see that happen in our life. All that fruit will be possible because the Holy Spirit is in you. Your old life is gone. Your new life is here. 
If you've discovered Jesus and this ministry has helped you follow him fully, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give through our Crossroads app or at crossroadsgrace.org give. Thank you for listening and remember to subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Now go and follow him fully.